Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Contact Lens Museum podcast series. We're really happy that you're taking a little time out of your day to listen to this episode. And we are really, really fortunate to have as our guest today, uh, Don Ezekiel. Uh, Don is from Perth, Australia. Some have called Don the father of scleral contact lenses. And uh, he has a really very interesting story to tell about his personal uh, history and his entry into the uh, eye care field, his training, uh, which really is a fascinating story. And then we hope to have him share with us the uh, development stuff that he did in the early modern uh, scleral lens arena. Uh, Pat Caroline is with us here today. Hi, Pat. And uh, thank you for participating. And um, uh, Don Ezekiel will be joining us. But uh, I also failed to mention that Don is also on the board of directors of the Contact Lens Museum. And in fact, if it wasn't for his contributions of many of his artifacts uh, to Pat Caroline, uh, you can make a case for there may not be a Contact Lens Museum today. So. So Don, can you can you tell us a little bit about your personal history in eye care? Um, how did you end up being interested in eyes, and where did you get your training, and what was that early path of yours like? Well, <clears throat> thank you very much, firstly, for uh, inviting me and asking me to run through some of my uh, history. Uh, my father was an optometrist. Uh, I was actually born in Singapore, and my father had a a practice in, uh, he and his brother had a practice in, in Batavia, in uh, Jakarta now, and in Singapore. And uh, uh, when the war came, we became uh, uh, refugees. Uh, and he, when I did optometry, he always said to me, uh, the world's changing, the world of specialisation is coming, or is here, and, uh, you know, if you're going to be, don't just be an optometrist, as it were, but uh, specialise and uh, you'll be okay. So uh, I, I did optometry in, at, the, at the time at the University of Western Australia. We had a diploma course. Um, this was going back 57 years, I think. So uh, that was a long time ago. Um, and one of, my, one of the, the lecturers in, in pathology was an ophthalmologist called Ken Barden-Brown. And uh, Ken had actually worked... Uh, studying in London, and he worked with Dallas. And Dallas taught him how to fit glass scleral lenses. So uh, during his, invariably, every lecture he gave us, because we're doing the anterior eye, uh, he brought up the subject of, of what a wonderful lens, a scleral lens was. Uh, and that, you know, that was absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, so I graduated and uh, Soon after I graduated, I flew over to Sydney where an optometrist, Lloyd Hewitt, Lloyd was a very prominent optometrist. He had a, um, he was the editor of the contact lens of the optometry journal for many, many years. Um, and he, uh, I spent a month with him and he uh, had patients and he showed me his technique of how to fit 
taking an impression of an eye and how he modified it and to fit a contact a scleral lens. Came back to, to Perth and uh, worked for a while and, uh, and got married. And four days later, my my gorgeous wife, Chalice, and I hopped on a, a boat and we went sail off to, to England to get some experience. And uh, I thought I'd like to do some of the exams and have at least a few letters after my name. Now, before I what, before leaving Perth, uh, I used to do honorary work at the main hospital, Royal Perth Hospital, uh, working with ophthalmologists, uh, doing uh, refracting, uh, and I got to know these people well. And when the uh, uh, Bob Linton, who was the senior ophthalmologist at Royal Perth, knew I was going to London, he said, oh, you've got to go to Moorfield and I'll give you an introduction. So having this introduction from um, Bob Clinton, I... Uh, uh, Bob Clinton. Uh, uh, I went to Moorfields, and uh, the head of Moorfields then was was uh, Ridley, um, uh, and Ridley was really quite quite famous. You know, he developed the the IOL, uh, but he was the head of the con- of the uh, contact lens uh, clinic, and he was very good to me. He just said, "Look, go down to the contact lens clinic and just just look." Um, and I, it was fascinating. I saw patients there that I'd read about but never ever seen, um, and that was fascinating. One of the uh, at the t- at the time, Monty Rubin was a registrar, um, and uh, I always remember the story. I was, uh, and uh, Norman Bear was a very was probably the most prominent um, contact lens uh, uh, practitioners in London at the time. He had written books and. He was really the the top, and I was at a lecture one day with, with um, Norman, and in came um, during the lecture, in came Monty with a group of other doctors, and uh, at one stage Norman said, uh, "Now if you had this problem, what would you do?" And Monty put up his hand and said, uh, "I put a hole in it uh, and penetrate it," and uh, uh, it, uh, he looked down at the end of his nose and sort of said. Uh, Norman said, you know, that is the most ridiculous answer. And afterwards I went up to Norman and said, Norman, you know, do you know who that is? That's Monty Rubin. He's going to be the heir, heir, heir apparent of Moorfield's contact lens section. And he said, well, it was a stupid answer. <laughs> so right. uh, that was so, Don, if, if you could, just, just so if we can put this in perspective. So what is, what is the time frame? What year did you? Uh, I graduated in 1957. No, no, I graduated in 1950. Uh, sorry, I've got to work this out. I graduated in 1951, uh, and I went to London in 1957. Okay, okay. And then just so for our, our listeners uh, to understand, um, earlier when you were talking about Dallas, of course, that's Joseph Dallas. Yeah. And then uh, it's Harold Ridley, yeah. correct? yeah. And then, of course, Montague Rubin and Norman Beer. I mean, that, of course, is like at my bookshelf where I have things with yeah. all those names on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, a, quite a group of people that you were fortunate enough yeah. to interact with early in your career. I was very lucky, you know, because I was in London at the time when uh, contact lenses were really evolving. Um, so I knew these people. I got to know these people well. Um, 
soon after I got there, I thought I'd do it, but the, the city university, I think it was a North, called the Northampton North Polytechnic, uh, had an advanced contact lens course, which was booked out years ahead. I didn't know this, but I, <clears throat> but I came, went out, fronted up, and uh, Bob Fletcher, who was, was not, he was running the course, later to become the professor, um, they had 12 students in the course. He explained to me that, um, you know, it's booked out, but I became the 13th. And Bob was really, really good to me. And so with his help and the education I got there, I went and, I went and did a, the exam in a, a group called, it was called the Diploma of Contact Lens Practice. Uh, did that, that uh, I passed that. And then I thought, gosh, I've got to, t- uh, there's time quite a few months before the, uh, the next exam, which was the DCLP. So I thought I'd better get a job and get some experience. And uh, so I went down to – Don, if I, if I could jump in again for a second. So can you, can you just give us a flavor of the kinds of lenses that were being used at that point and – Maybe even a little bit about how they were fit and fabricated. Yeah. Well, basically, at that time, um, scleral lens and corneal lens were just coming into vogue or were in vogue or were being used. Um, um, I just go back a step, uh, Craig. Uh, so I went down to Hamlin. I, I walked down the, uh, to the West End. I, I mm-hmm. went down Harley Street. I had no idea about London. And somehow I turned left into New Cavendish Street. And there was Hamlin's. So I walked into Hamlin's, looked a respectable place, and said, look, you need me. I've done scleral lenses. I've done this. And the, the, the gentleman there said, well, we don't do the contact lens. That's done in the shop opposite. And it's run by a guy called Dallas, but he's very difficult to work with. But uh, good luck. And I went in there, and Dallas and I got on very well. He was like a father figure to me. And uh, it was interesting. Um, sorry, Craig. I'm not actually, I'll get to your question in a moment. Um, Dallas said to me, oh, where are you from? Uh, which part of Australia? Perth. Oh, do you know uh, Ida Mann? Yes, I know Ida Mann well. We live in the same suburb. You know, she's about three or four blocks from where I live. And they said, oh, when you get back to Perth, say hello for me. And I will dive back to that later, but uh, Ida Mann was responsible to get Dallas out of Hungary and into London where they set up uh, Moorfield's uh, contact lens clinic. Uh, Dallas was an ophthalmologist. And he was, he was developed, he was, was at the same time as Norman Beer, uh, described how a penetration of a scleral lens allowed the patient to not, not get uh, uh, bailing and could wear the lens all day. And uh, I actually said to Dallas, you know, that's very interesting, how did you do that? And he said, well, I just, uh, I had a patient in and with the, with the glass lens, it was a seal lens, you push the lens back on the eye, and where you see blanching, you've got to relieve that, so you grind away a bit of the material. And uh, he did this, and he went, made a hole in the lens. So he polished it up, explained to the patient that, you know, I'm sorry, I made a mess of this lens, um, and uh, come back on Friday, and we'll have a new lens for you. He didn't see the patient for a few months, and when he came in, he said, what's going on? And he said, well, I haven't come back because I've been wearing this all day. And then to quote Dallas, all I had to do then is to work out where to put the hole. Uh, also, I'm diverting again, but this is quite historical. Um, uh, Dallas was the first one to, to take an impression of an eye. You know, most of our, our uh, work comes out of dentistry, and uh, what he, he had a sister 
who was an anthropologist, and she was taking an impression of, of a mummy uh, without damaging the, the uh, mummy in any way. So he used the same material, which was dental material, to do uh, take an impression of an eye. And yet, every t- the, all the time I worked with Dallas, he never ever took an impression of an eye. He had a well, I guess he had preform lenses. He had three shells, which were large, medium, and small in diameter. Mm-hmm. And every time he made fitted a patient, he put a, he made an extra lens, put it on the shelf. A patient would come in, he'd look at the eye, uh, you know, say, look at the eye, I think this is about the closest I'll get, look for a lens, pop it in, and then modify it. Um, so it's, that's the, the history of me with Joseph Dallas. He was a really, really nice person. Um, very, very nice. Um, so, Don, so I've seen some of the um, um, graphics related to that area of London uh, that points out kind of like the walking tour of the history of contact lenses. And, you know, where Hamblin was and uh, Moorfields, I believe, and some of these other entities, they were fairly close together. Is that correct? Um, well, I, I, what I remember about Moorfields was the contact lens clinic was very, very dark. <laughs> you know, uh, how anyone could find the patient, let alone the eye, that's exaggerating, but it was really quite very dark and really quite primitive. Um, uh, 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 City University or uh, Northampton Polytechnic was not so far away as, as I remember. Um, and we just had lived in a little bed sitter in the, um, uh, Kilburn, and it was easy, to, very easy to negotiate. It was very easy to find them. And uh, one interesting thing, uh, another interesting thing of Dallas, he started playing around with corneal lenses, but he never used fluorescein. He worked, he said, he showed me the, his technique of how the corneal lens uh, went onto the tear layer. You could work out from that whether it's steep, flat, or whatever. And, um, Quite interesting. I used to use that in practice sometimes just as a matter of interest to see, you know, how close he was. Right, right. So can you go back to that, um, the Ida Man part of this story? So I had not heard before that, you know, you knew her before all of this took place. Yeah. Well, she was, uh, she, she was... She got Dallas out of. She was instrumental for, uh, I guess, saving Dallas because you know I remember she uh, and I when I went back to see uh, Dallas told me how uh, the story of how he got out of out of uh, Hungary and when I got to Perth and, and went to see her again she also told me the story of how she got Dallas out of London you know after the war well, there was a lot of mustard gas dystrophy and. Dallas in Hungary had worked out a way to, to fit these patients with a glass scleral lens, gave them vision, gave them comfort. So Dallas and two other ophthalmologists from Moorfields flew over to um, Budapest to talk, to talk um, Dallas into coming, but he wouldn't go. You know, they sort of said, you know, I don't think Hungary is a good place for a young Jewish boy. Come to Moorfields and we'll, you know, and, and we'll set you up. Uh, she very, she, she actually told me the story, and I actually said to her, look, that's part of our history. That's going to die one day, so please write it out. So she did write it out, and uh, 
that's in the museum now, the, the letter that uh, Ida typed, yeah. typed out. Um, so uh, Dallas really was very instru- very instrumental. And uh, Ida Mann was a very, very, very famous ophthalmologist. You know, she was the first female professor of, uh, of anything, I think, in, in the UK. Um, she wrote it. There is a book on Ida Mann, which is all in the museum, which is very, very interesting. And uh, she came, she had a husband, her husband had a, a lung problem and had to get out of, was recommended to move to a warm climate. So she came to Perth and she made a big name for herself in, in Perth. You know, she used to work with the Aboriginals, uh, treating them for, for trachoma. Um, uh, and I can remember, you know, in those days, well, going back to the 60s, ophthalmology were not allowed to to speak at any meetings or attend any meetings by optometrists. You know, that was taboo. And I was, I was talking to them one day because I used to pop in and see her quite often. And uh, I mentioned to her that the annual meeting of the Australian Contact Lens Society was going to be held in Perth on the following Saturday. And she said, oh, and I'm doing, a, I'm presenting a paper. I said, oh, that's great. What time's your paper? I forget, two o'clock. So I, I, I'm being introduced and in walks Ida Man and a very famous ophthalmologist from Moorfields, Dorothy Parker. They both came in. I, I introduced them to the to uh, the optometrist and uh, did my paper, and, and she left. But n- not, you know, in the old days, if you did, if an opt- if this was happening, and the ophthalmologist knew she'd be in big trouble. But she was so well respected, no one said a word. And uh, maybe that was the beginning of where ophthalmology and optometry. Got working together, maybe. Yeah. So, so uh, I'm sorry to interject, but I, I know that the Ida Man story, of course, is so interesting, which is why we thought it would be important for you to expand upon that, expand upon that a little bit. And then, so can you give us a time frame? Well, first of all, let me ask: Is there anything else about the story in London that you would like to um, bring up for the listeners? Well, um, you, you may know that I started making my own contact lenses, and that came about really from Dallas, uh, who always said to me, you've got to make your own lenses. Don't trust what you get, because keep in mind, this is a long, long time ago, and things are still pretty, I think, amateurish compared, well, certainly compared to today. And uh, I remember sitting with, and I used to go back to London every year to, to keep up with it, and Monty who was then the head of the department, always gave me time and we'd sit there and have a coffee and he'd tell me what was new um, and make us all at home, as it were, go and see the clinic, go and see the laboratory downstairs. And uh, he said to me, look, you've really got to make your own lenses. There's so much interesting things going on. I'll organise it for you. So he picked up the phone and called George Nissel. Uh, Nissel made the – and Nissel was a brother-in-law of, of Danos, also from Hungary um, – Rang, rang up uh, George Little and said, look, I've got this character here from Australia. He's coming out tomorrow and he's, he's going to make contact lenses. So I teach him. Uh, then he picked up the phone and made another call to uh, uh, Philip Cordray and David Clulo. Now, these guys were uh, had a, 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 a laboratory called uh, contact lens manufacturing. Uh, now, that became Sorflon. And... Um, they were making, I think they were ahead of their time. They were making materials, high water contact materials, 70%, 85%. Um, mm-hmm. They had solutions. 
they had um, uh, uh, chemicals to clean lenses. Uh, they actually made um, contact lens uh, machinery. Um, they really were ahead of their time. David Clulo was a fascinating person. He was when he was a student doing optometry. He started fitting uh, rigid contact lenses, corneal lenses, and basically, if it, if the lens cost him five pound, he would sell it for seven pound. And by the time he graduated, he had a huge practice. They had this practice in Earls Court, absolutely beautifully de- done out, and. Um, he, he actually started having what they call a replacement scheme. Fascinating. Um, he, he, he'd fit a patient up and then say, look, you know, if you join my patient, my replacement scheme, it's going to cost you £10 or whatever. Um, if you lose the limbs, you, you, can, you can get it at, at a basic cost. So it costs him five, five pounds He'd sell it for, for, for seven. And he told me that at one stage he had over 30,000 patients lined up for his replacement scheme. Amazing. Wow. And they had, they had a huge lab, uh, very successful. That, um, they, got, they got involved with um, orchids, and when the great uh, freeze came, I think they, you know, they virtually lost it all. Shame. But, um, uh, and when I started making lenses, I started making um, uh, using the sawflon materials, the high water content. And that's so, so Don. Again, though, so you're making lenses where uh, in in Perth in my in my little practice. Yeah. So okay. So you learned you learned it from these guys in London. Yeah. And then when you came back to Perth, that's when you were getting the manufacturing started for the first time. Yeah. And really, it was what I the way uh, Nissels were teaching me how to set up the 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 key of setting up a making a lens is to have the lens set up absolutely perfectly. So the diamond's dead center. If it's not right, uh, in this don't get good optics on. And I can remember going to the, the spending weekend after weekend and uh, making maybe two or three lenses, no optics. Uh, you know, it was just really learning the hard way. But Okay. And, Don, can you describe the lenses that you were making at that time? I was making um, – uh, once, once I uh, – I eventually went back to London one year and, and I um, – a gentleman by the name of Peter Bright, who had a lab called Focus, he he uh, taught me how to set up the lathe, and that was easy. There's a, there's a group of small labs around the world that we always sort of tra- ex- um, uh, exchange ideas. I remember we had a little uh, mechanic upstairs making um, uh, crimpers to the Torex, and we used to make these crimpers and send them to people around the world that asked for them. You know, didn't charge them, but it, we got it back another way. Uh, so that's I was really set it up to make lenses for my my patients. And then, and I was making high water content. No, I never made HEMA. HEMA was easy to make. Uh, I've always made high water content because that's what Monty was, you know, Morfields were using. Most of the good guys in London were using. Uh, they weren't okay. using HEMA. So, so Don, you were. So, what we're talking about right now is the fabrication of soft lenses. That's right. Well, and that's that's another interesting story because I was barely eight months into trying to trying to make lenses. Still, um, I got a high court writ. The high court in Australia is the highest court in the land, um, and the, the writ was that um, we were making lenses in the dry form and hydrating it, and there was a patent there. 
which a group called National Patent Development Corporation had bought, uh, and they sued four people. Uh, two were importers, stopped importing. One was um, Penn Thomas Corner Lens Corporation, which is the largest lab in, in, in Australia, and um, he actually, I think, virtually walked out and they took over. So that left me to defend. Uh, one good thing about that, a lot of people around the world sent me prior knowledge papers. Very, very interesting. Um, but, you know, with the High Court, you've got to defend it with Queen's Council, Assistant Queen's Council, patent attorneys, lawyers, and me. Um, they didn't have a case. We replied, as we had to, and we never heard another thing. But this is how, unfortunately, big companies like to operate. They just muscle their way in and, you know, good little people get pushed out. Okay. Under, understood. And... Um... So to to keep the historical part of this, so you were fabricating the soft lenses. Yes. Uh, in the time frame on that, uh, that would have been uh, uh, that would be uh, probably sixty one onwards, nineteen sixty one. Okay. I was very young. So I started fitting lenses when I was when I was in the, still had nappies on. Right, so early sixties, and the material was from the guys in the UK. Yeah, David Kulo and uh, uh, Philip Cordray. Yep, content as manufacturer. Okay, and um, so I mean that's significantly earlier than, of course, there was much happening in the US relative to soft lenses. Yeah, well, you know, in Australia, I guess I don't know. We've, we've we can we can do things. Well, I do used to do things in Australia which I probably shouldn't be doing, like you know, developing products and not getting permission from and uh, going through the red tape. You know, if I had a pro, I, I lived in I was living first the most isolated city in the world. There's no one I can talk to. So if I had a problem, I've just got to sit down and work it out. So and that's how the the gas perm the scleral came about. Um, I, I was I was I was fitting in pediatric patients from the children's hospital. We had just one large uh, children's hospital, and the head of the of the ophthalmology was a, uh, Professor Mary Bremner, and she she and others had come had trained in London, knew what the benefits of a squirrel lens were. So she, I'd get a call once a week, sometimes more often, saying, "Look, I've just taken a." Uh, and a cataract out of this this four week old baby um, mm-hmm. in the, on Thursday we're going to uh, anesthetize her uh, to see what we how we go, how she's going. I want you to come and fit a squirrel lens to her. So I go over, gown up, you know, uh, the, ba- the, the baby was anesthetized. Of course, Bill's phenomenal came in. You know, the eye would roll up, and I get a great impression of the lower cantus and a very little bit of cornea. So. This is really hard work, you know. It's got to be an easier way. Now we were using uh, uh, Boston materials. And no, we were. No one was actually fitting PMMA anymore for corneal lenses, and yet we're doing right. we're doing it for scleral lenses. You know, crazy. So, so Don, if 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 I could, um, and of course I have a recurrent theme here because I want to keep on the timeline because I think it's <laughs> okay. you know the timeline of your history because it's so interesting. So. 
um, in the early 60s, you were fiddling around with these soft lenses, as you yeah. said. Yeah. Uh, I'm sensing that you were making corneal lenses at the same time. Yes, yes. Okay. And then, um, you know, the, the Boston connection, though, that's at the very earliest was the middle 70s, though. Yeah. Well, that's... Uh, so so yeah. that's my point. So what happened in between there? So between the early 60s, when you were f- fabricating soft lenses, you know, from the soft line-like connection and, and getting a lab going and seeing patients and working with the hospitals, did it just continue along that path for the next 10 years? It did. I, I think I just learned how to uh, learn the, the craft and how to, how to make a lens. Uh, and then uh, I was, I, was very, I had a very busy practice. So I got uh, a, a, a spectacle mechanic to join me and I taught him what I knew. And then he, you know, he rolled it from there. A lot of the work was you know, refining the edge by hand. You know, all this sort right. of thing, which is really, you know, very hard to duplicate. Um, and, so, and Don, so at this point, were you only making lenses for yourself, or did you start to think that maybe you could be providing them to other eye care? Well, I think folks in yeah, because I was I was I was being different, you know, not fitting HEMA, I was fitting high water content, um, and I'd go to meetings and I'd I'd speak about what I was doing and the results I was getting. Uh, other uh, practitioners would come to me and say, look, could you make this for me? Can you make that for me? So, you know, I'd get an extra technician and then that became, you know, I needed bigger premises and it sort of grew, um, not by intention, but just um, it just grew from there. Okay. Okay. So you were, you were making lenses. You had started a commercial, quote-unquote, commercial laboratory, right? Yeah. And, and fitting lenses for yourself. And then that takes us into the early 70s where you had already grown out of the scleral phase, I'm guessing, from London, or were you still fitting sclerals in the 60s and oh, late yeah. 60s? Yeah, I was fitting. I had a good scleral lens practice. You know, um, there were ophthalmologists that had trained in London that, uh, like I had a man, and she had 70 patients. Um, uh, so I was sitting, I, was, I had quite a, a, a good uh, pra- uh, scleral lens practice. Uh, right, but these were PMMA lenses at the time. Uh, PMMA, yeah. Okay, good. And and just for curiosity, where, where were you able to get raw materials, quote-unquote buttons, that were that large? Well, basically, uh, when I got the idea why we're using PMMA, uh, when when no one's using PMA for corneal lenses. Uh, we're buying product from uh, Polymer. So I flew to to Boston, and at the time, uh, Polymer was owned by Perry, Perry Rosenthal, and Lou Major. And uh, I sat down with them and I said, you know, I need to, uh, I'd like to get some big buttons so I can make, you know, how big? 25, 26 millimeter diamonds. Cause right. So, so Donna, I'm, I'm sorry, but so you're already getting big uh, or large buttons in PMMA from some source, right? That's right, yeah. And was that in Australia or the UK um, or the US or where were I they coming pro- from? I probably got to the UK because a lot of people are fitting scleral lenses in the UK. 
you know, more fillers are fitting scleral lenses, PMMA scleral lenses. Um, yeah. They had a bit, yeah. they, they did a lot of them. So yeah. So, were, Don, if I, could a, if I can ask Pat a question here. Pat, to the best of your knowledge, was there much going on with scleral lenses in the U.S. at that time? I guess Pat has checked out momentarily. We will remove this in the editing. Don't worry, Don. Um, well, there were some, you know. I mean, Fine Bloom uh, was, was had fitted was fitting scleral lenses. And, yes. Uh, uh, I actually re- met him one day at a, at a meeting. He was, uh, he was, he was really quite, he was, he was quite old in that stage, <laughs> almost as old as I am now. And uh, I said to him, I haven't, because I was collecting lenses, uh, interesting lenses, and I said to him, I haven't got any of your lenses. And uh, he said, well, I've, re- I've retired, but here's my son's detail. Uh, I made contact with him, and he said, I haven't got anything, but I'll keep you in mind. And some months later, I got these malls. The, the email or the letter said, I found these on the floor of the, of the, of the warehouse. Might be useful. The original malls to make squirrel lenses, you know, priceless. So, uh, they're in yeah, the, no they're kidding. In, they're in the uh, museum now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm I'm sorry there to interrupt, but um, okay. So now it's in the early seventies or middle seventies. Do you yes, think yeah. uh, when you had the Perry Rosenthal connection? Yeah. And you know the interesting that Perry was the head of the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Hospital at that intersection. And when I asked for the large blanks. To fit squirrels, he said, why do you want those? No one fits squirrels anymore. And I sort of said, yes, they do. And, you know, it's a, and it's a need. It's a big need for it because no one's, you know, I'm seeing patients that are, as you know, you know, you know the benefits of squirrel lenses now. I've seen these patients, you know, people coming in who are due for a graft and I could fit them with the lens and, you know, 10 years later they're still wearing the lenses. No problem. So um, anyway, I, I got the... I've, Eventually, I got this rod uh, of, from uh, Lou Major, who was running the, the, the laboratory, said he'd send them to me, and I never heard anything. So I've actually, every, tw- at least twice a week, I sent him a, a, a telex, where mm-hmm. are my blanks? <laughs> and eventually, he said to me one day, I had this pile of your telexes on my desk, so I thought I'd better get this guy out of my hair. So he sent me a rod, just a rod of uh, large diameter material, which we cut up and made Lenses. Right, right. And, uh, and so I think I think for folks listening to this, they may not know what, you know, the terminology rod means, but, you know, it's, it's plastic that was poured down a large tube, right, and cured in that tube. And then when it comes out, it's, it's uh, like a um, shower rod or a bathroom rod. It really is. And then it needs to be cut into specific thicknesses for fabrication. Uh, what I find interesting from what you're saying is that they didn't cut it to the uh, width of each button, no. you know, raw material. You had to do that yourself. We did. In fact, I, I did a, a made a, a video because I did a paper at uh, uh, actually when Roger Cammy was the president of the uh, American Academy of Optometry. He uh-huh. sent me a, a letter, uh, which I gave in the museum amongst all the, the correspondence saying that I believe you're fitting squirrel in Can you give it, do a paper for us? So I did a paper. Um, and, uh, and especially after the, the 
the paper on guest film squirrels, people were coming and asking me, um, what do I do next sort of thing? So I did a paper on it and and a video on it. And if you look in the video, there's this this technician holding this rod (laughs) of material. So that's the first uh, uh, large diameter gas per material yep. that was ever made. Yep. And then did you have to modify your machinery uh, to be able to cut it, or you just used the same thing that you were using no. for the PMMA buttons? We used the same, but we we had a little uh, a little uh, metal lathe upstairs in the uh, in, where we were making, because we were a long way away from everybody. So it's very, very difficult. You know, if I wanted to order something, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd eventually get it, but I might have forgotten what I wanted it for. So right. I we used to make our own little, uh, our own little pieces all the time. So we modified. In fact, when Perry came out to have a look at what we were doing, uh, you know, he, I think there's an email. I'm not sure if that's still in the in the collection. Saying, you know, uh, what what? How do you mount the, mount the button? And I think we made them and just sent them to him. You know. Um, we're all we're all learning at this stage, I think. Uh, but we made our own little things and just had no one else to talk to. We have to work it out ourselves. Well, and of course, Don, in the in the seventies, around that time frame, the lathing equipment was not very sophisticated at all. No, it was it wasn't at all. It was very, in fact, you know, a bit earlier from that on, we actually developed a. Uh, the first foldable interocular lens made out of HEMA. And, uh, you know, an ophthalmologist registrar at the time, after I gave a, a talk to registrar, uh, uh, waited after the meeting and said, can you make this for me? And I said, how many do you want? And he said, oh, if it works, many. Uh, so we modified because we didn't have these fancy layers we have today. And I can remember, uh, of course, being in bush range, bush, bush, bush range with territory in Australia, we just did it, <laughs> and this guy, uh, still a registrar, implanted lenses, and I remember he rang me up one night about 11 or 12 saying, come and have a look at this, I can see lathe marks, and sure enough, there were, because we didn't have microscopes or anything in those days. We learned very quickly. But, uh, right. Right. So, Don, at this you know, point, so there's Rosenthal, who's starting to get a bit of an interest in the U.S., of course, you've got the interest, you know, from Australia and kind of a global view. Uh, who were who the other peers of yours about this time? Um, I really didn't have anyone to talk to, to be honest with you. You know, I was sitting, uh, uh, I was sitting in the most isolated city in the world. You know, it's about uh, nearly two thousand k's to the next major city, and there was no one. There were a couple of people fitting. Sclerals in, in Australia, PMMA. Um, I had no one to talk to. So okay. I was talking to So my... So were your peers, so, you know, you get at somebody that's creative, like a Perry Rosenthal. I mean, that, you know, that, that would be interesting. And then, so were you interacting with any of the Europeans, like the Visser family, for instance? Or... No, I wasn't interacting with anybody, to be honest with you. You know, I was just uh, put my head down and, and tried to work out how to do things. And uh, when I got the the results for the gas perm, I thought, well, this is interesting. So uh, I applied to the BCLA to do a a, a paper. And at the meeting, there was a paper uh, a section on scleral lenses, uh, fenestrated, 
slotted multiple fenestrations, and then this character from Australia stands up and says, why aren't we using gas plume material? And the interesting thing, uh, Irving Fat reported on the, in, in the optician uh, saying no one really believed the results because the material is too thick. Uh, subsequently to that, I, I did that video, and we showed the whole group of patients with a whole uh, section of eye, eye problems wearing scleral lenses, and Irving was at the meeting, and he said, well, you're getting results. Well, you're obviously getting results. Send me lenses, send me designs, and I'll do the calculation. And that was Boston X, uh, Boston 2. So it's a pretty uh, ancient sort of material. But he came back saying, well, I guess five times more. And that original, all those papers are in the museum as well from mm -hmm. uh, the letters. So, so, Don, if I can ask you, you know, for so many uh, inventor-type um, people like yourself that have a, a vision of a particular product, like what we're talking about right now with these, you know, scleral GP lenses. And um, my question is, how frustrating was it for you when nobody wanted to listen to it because it didn't make any sense and it was viewed as being old school and that corneal lenses were the name of the game going forward? Yeah. I look very difficult, you know, very, very difficult. I, I used to do workshops uh, showing how I fitted scleral lenses, you know, how I fitted them and how I modified them. And really, it's not rocket science. It's really quite straight, you know. It takes a little bit of time. That's the only problem. And in the modern world, it's a quick fix, I think, you know. Uh, I found in, in, in Australia we have a lot of this tall poppy syndrome, anyone doing something a bit different that uh, yeah. does, isn't, doesn't go down well. Now, I had this laboratory here, um, and we got in, in Perth, I've got virtually, I've got minimal support from, they'd rather order something from interstate, even things that they, that weren't available, that we had developed, like uh, even a, a, a GP translating bifocal. Now, you know, we got very little support locally, even from so-called good friends of mine. Uh, yeah. That's life. I just had to pull my head in and, you know, as a well-known ophthalmologist said, just don't worry about everybody else, just do what you were doing. And at the end of the day, you'll be okay. So. Well, and Don, I will speak for myself. I re remember this time frame and hearing about the reintroduction of sclerals myself and was thinking that this is crazy. I mean, yeah. why, why would you need that? And then, of course, it's been proven since then exactly why you would need that. Yeah. And, and Pat, don't you think that, you know, when – we were scheming and dreaming back in the 70s and early 80s. Scleral lenses didn't even enter the conversation. Yeah. Well, I must say, sorry, interrupting again, but it's very satisfying to see, uh, you know, to go to meetings that are just on scleral lenses. You know, I find it just fascinating, whereas I used to try to, to knock down the wall to tell people, to tell doctors, this lens is really needed. People with this, without this lens, People don't see. Uh, you can yeah. you can change lives, and I yeah. always say the most fascinating, the most rewarding thing is to sit in, be in your in in your consulting room, and the patients cry, and the and the parents are crying because the patient can see. It's the yeah. It's really very nice. I know that uh, having experienced that situation myself personally many times, it you know it. It's actually kind of embarrassing because 
when it first happens, you don't want any other patients or their families seeing somebody crying in your waiting room. <laughs> you know, they don't really know why they're crying. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, I mean, you literally, you know, we like to use this phrase, you know, you're changing people's lives, but yeah. uh, it, that really, really is, is the case. Well, so Donna, if, sorry. if I can just switch gears for just a, a second, yeah. um, Obviously, the um, number of unbelievable artifacts and historical correspondences and other things that uh, are either on loan or been donated from you to the the museum are fantastic. So I'm curious, did you purposely become a collector or did you just like keeping things or how how did all that happen? Uh, well, I think it started with when I left uh, Dallas uh, practice because we were very close. Every year I used to go back to London. I used to call in on him and, you know, spend time with him. Uh, but when I left, he gave me a big box, well, quite a large box of glass squirrel lenses, you know, all, all sizes. Uh, he said, well, this will get you going. Um, and they were priceless. I really uh, – and when I was visiting um, uh, practitioners and saying, well, this is – you know, showing you how to fit a squirrel or just talking about innovative products, I'd invariably say, what have you got in the bottom drawer there? And they'd pull it open and say, oh, I've got this, you know, one guy pulled out a fitting set of fine blue lenses. You know, mm-hmm. priceless. Oh, this is no good to anybody. Would you like it? So I sort of collected, started collecting. I used to go on eBay and look and see what's available. And I can remember uh, negotiating or bargaining with, Bidding against uh, a, a, a very well-known practitioner um, and winning the lenses, uh, buying the lenses, and getting an email almost immediately saying, "You bastard! You probably bought it." <laughs> uh, but so that's how I was, I was clicked. When Ida Man retired, she rang me up because she had a, an original set of Hamblin's glass scleral lenses, and uh, I she rang and said, "I've got these lenses here. Would you like them?" Um, I think before she'd hung up, I was at a doorstep. Uh, that's also in the collection. And when I had that, yeah. uh, George Nissel was, was a great collector of, of, of interesting lenses. And when he heard I had uh, this uh, Ida's fitting set, he, he uh, co- communicated with me and said, well, that's fantastic. How much do you want for it? <laughs> so let's just price the stuff to keep because history is wonderful. You know, we've learned a lot from we should look back on history and we can learn a lot from history. Yeah. Well, you know what I think is so amazing that, you know, you're a collector, you know, Patrick's been a collector, you know, in, in the 40 plus years that, you know, we've been close friends and associates and, and, you know, so many people get the opportunity to have, really important artifacts pass through their hands, mm. but they don't have the foresight to actually keep it. Yeah. Well, I think... And well, that, which is why things disappear and, and why everybody's searching for something special because, you know, they've been, you know, damaged or thrown out or they go yeah. from one generation to another and the new generation doesn't know what they are and just gets yeah. rid of them. Well, this is what... This basically, like, with, uh, you know, when Ken Barton Brown was fitting glass girls, uh He'd order, order lenses from England and it'd take three or four months to come to, to get back. And then he'd probably break it or have to modify it. 
will nullify the power if they take another four months. So he said to a, um, a patient who had trachoma, a uh, very interesting story, and this, this, this is all in the museum, even a book he wrote because he actually got uh, went to Singapore with the army and got uh, got uh, captured with, by the Japanese, put on a, sh- uh, a ship and was sent to the mines in Japan, which got promptly torpedoed. Uh, he spent three days in the water uh, in an oil slick and uh, he was actually rescued by a, a, an American submarine. That submarine now is, is a showpiece in the uh, San Francisco Na- uh, Museum, Nautical Museum. Uh, wow. But he said to, uh, Ken said to uh, this guy, uh, Philip Beebe, uh, Philip Bilby, make me, I want you to make lenses for me. And Philip was a patient. He had trachoma. He, had not, he knew nothing about contact lenses. And he built this machine, uh, which is in the museum, because I said to Philip, and he also lived nearby. I said, look, Philip, you're going to pop off one day. You know, your, your family will look at this and think it's rubbish. It's not. It's priceless. So he rang one day and said, you know, would you like it? Again, I think yeah. I was at his doorstep with a truck before he could hang up. Um, yeah. Uh, but And also, I was lucky in many ways because I was isolated. And being isolated and having no one to talk to, you know, you have to work things out yourself. And everything's basic. If you go back to basic principles and work from there, you know, it can't go wrong. Dallas taught me how to, how to, uh, to research. He basically said, if you've got an idea, make it. If, if it doesn't work, Move it, moves parameters, but not just by a little bit, by a long way. Uh, so we know we've developed a translating soft by purple. So I had this idea because we're doing rigid. Why not we do the same with the soft? So we sure. made, we made this lens, and you know it didn't work. So I, I I moved it one way to the extreme, translated beautifully, very uncomfortable. Great, we fine tuned it, so it became comfortable. So it's all common sense, and being isolated. Now, when the original check lenses were available, if I ordered some lenses that may take months to come here, so I'd order three or four pairs, probably more, for each patient. Now, you put the first one and it didn't work, so I kept everything. I kept all the correspondence, kept the original lenses spares in the original vial. So I guess I was a bit of a, a, bit of a collector, a bit of a magpie, as they say. Right, right. Well, you know, I think that there's – usually a fine line between a collector and somebody who hoards things. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, the, the collector, though, of course, knows what to keep. Mm. Where, you know, if you hoard things, you just keep everything. Yeah. No. And, and uh, so that is fascinating. So, you know, I, I would like to, you know, to go back to a little bit of a more recent history is that uh, – Don, you know, that this large collection you had, you ended up ultimately putting it into a book. Yes. And so so that was around seven years ago. Is that right? Did you started putting yeah. the book together? Yes. Well, basically, I had this collection. You know, I, uh, I the laboratory, I had a, a health problem and, you know, I thought I was going to pop off. Um, doctors have got a lot to account for. They said I had a bad a uh, very virulent cancer, and you know, things are not looking good. So the lab was acquired, but I kept I kept all my antiques. And then what do I do with them? So the uh, the Australian people wondered it, 
but they had no nowhere to show it. They said, we'll catalogue it and store it. And I said, no, I don't, you know. I mean, the museum here wanted it, and they'd catalogue it, but no one would ever see it. So uh, right. I, I put this booklet together um, oh, with, with the help of a, 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 an, an optometrist friend, and uh, I went to, to uh, meetings, and I was at this meeting, and I happened to say, you know, I was saying to everybody who I thought could be interested, do you collect antiques? So I said this to Pat, and he said, why? And I said, well, I've got this collection, and I don't know what to do with it. Uh, and he said, well, how much do you want for it? So I don't want anything for it, but I want it to be dead displayed. So people, you know, I don't want it just to be put away because it'll get lost and it'll be the end of it. And so yep. uh, Pat came out, and it was fascinating. I should have had a tape recorder because he's going through the correspondence, and he kept on saying, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's... And that, well, you know, Don, of course, I have a memory of this. Uh, I still remember that um, we were in a Las Vegas hotel. We were at the registration desk and you were in front of me yeah. and we were waiting to get in and we were just chit-chatting and you brought the book out. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember looking at it and thinking about how fascinating this was and, um, you know, how, how great it was to be able to demonstrate the collectibles that you've had over the years because of course i was fortunate enough to visit you at one time when you had them in your laboratory and you had them in the front entryway some of the pieces and i just think it's so fortuitous uh that you and pat uh, were able to hook up together because you know without that meeting uh a you would not have had a place that ultimately can showcase these artifacts that you've kept as jewels over the years. And B, there would not be a contact lens museum in the United States. Yeah. No, it's, look, it's, when I visited uh, last year, it was just so nice to see it nice. Well, even at that, that uh, uh, conference in Vegas where Pat came along and you came in and displayed it all. It was just yeah. just wonderful. So many so many practitioners were looking and saying, "Wow, you know, it's uh, yeah, we've come a long way." Well, you know, it happened again this year at the uh, GSLS meeting in Las Vegas in January that uh, we just had a relatively small table. We didn't have that big event like we did the year you're talking about. Yeah, but it's great because uh, if you're a true contact lens person then you're interested in the history of contact lenses. Yeah. And to get the opportunity to actually see and and uh, pick up and touch and feel and learn about the history yeah. uh, of these things is really, it's it's just incredible. Yeah. No, it's, uh, in fact, I, I, I probably enjoy it more as much as everybody. I just love looking right. at history. And, uh, and I still look at the eBay and, and see if there's anything really worthwhile. Yeah. Well, that's the one thing you and I and Pat have in common, that we're searching for something that everybody else thinks is useless constantly on eBay, trying to look for that one jewel. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that, uh, in fact, we just uh, picked up uh, uh, an advertisement uh, that was from Australia and was from that Penn Thomas group. Yeah. And... uh, so it's kind of fun to see those those things and yeah 
So, Don, do you have any closing comments you'd like to make? No, I just think that the uh, I just like to think uh, doctors, uh, practitioners, anyone from around the world that's got old pieces that are really uh, they think are not worthwhile having. Uh, no one wants them. Well, I think it, they should look at the museum and say, why don't we contribute them to the uh, to the group so that in t- for posterity, people can look back and see where we've come from. We've, exactly. And I think it's, uh, they'll find it very, very satisfying, uh, and I do, I have, that, uh, uh, that you and, and Pat have put together this, this museum, which is fantastic. You know, it's, uh, there's so much interesting history there, and we now take it for granted. We fit squirrels, we fit all sorts of interesting contact lenses. How did it happen? It just didn't happen like that. It, it evolved. Yeah. And uh, just to see how it evolved is magic. So if you've got any if any doctors uh, out there have got, uh, please look in your bottom drawer. If you've got old fitting sets, old lenses, old anything, please let uh, Pat and, and Craig know because it's valuable uh, and it's important for our future yeah. generation. Oh, that's, that's nice of you to say. And, you know, here, Don, here's one of the amazing things is that you look at, you know, the history of modern contact lenses, and it's, you know, it's 50 years or so, right? Yeah. Maybe 60. And, of course, you don't realize that when you're young, but when you get older, you realize that's not a very long time frame whatsoever. No, no. And, you know, when things get lost in that, in within that time period, you can't really bring them back uh, at any point. So... Well, I know, certainly in my lifetime, I've seen so many changes that uh, some good, some not so good. Oh, yeah. But I mean, in fact, uh, you for one has actually lived through most of the modern contact lens history and in fact have played a critical role in the uh, history of modern contact lenses. And uh, Don, I think that we are all indebted to you for that. Uh, for your contributions, and also, of course, for what you've been able to leave for the rest of us uh, at the Contact Lens Museum. So, Don Ezekiel, thank you very much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, I am so glad that uh, from a personal level that we've gotten to know each other much more over the last few years. And your contributions to the contact lens field uh, really are fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Craig, and thanks, Pat. Really, it's a it's been uh, an interesting uh, journey, and uh, I hope I'm around to see the next chapter play out. Uh, thank oh, you. I think you will be. <laughs> Thanks very much. You bet. Patrick, do you have any comments? So if not, Don, thank you very much, and we look forward to talking to you soon. All right. No, thank you, and thanks for the time. I really appreciate the, yeah. the opportunity. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.